all of it, all of it felt like it was swamped by the urgency and the challenges of the climate crisis. And though I had known that intellectually for a while, again, the distinction between what we know rationally and what we feel emotionally ready for, uh, I, I, uh, it really took Hurricane Sandy to push me definitively in that direction. And then it was only a couple of weeks after that, for a variety of other reasons, I was looking for a next, for a next big thing to throw myself at. I knew it was going to have to be something about climate. Mm-hmm. And the idea for a climate museum slid so thoroughly and fully formed into my mind that I 100% assumed that I had read about a climate museum somewhere and that my next big thing would be to go help whoever was doing it. Mm-hmm. And I was astounded to discover that we would be the first in the U.S. That was Miranda Massey. She's the director and founder of the Climate Museum in New York City. The Climate Museum uses the power of arts and cultural programming to create an ongoing and progressive conversation surrounding the climate crisis. Her institution is committed to inspiring climate activism through art. The work she and her crew does invites people to recognize their own ability to act on climate change. It's an advocacy museum, she says, where they hope their audience will take action to consider themselves as climate ambassadors who actively engage in climate change action. Miranda says that appealing to a rationalist perspective doesn't work. That's actually how she found her way to creating the Climate Museum. It was 2012, and Hurricane Sandy was wreaking havoc on New York City. She lives in the city, so she watched as the effects of climate change were brought to her front door. Before that, she had understood climate change on a rational level. But faced with the destruction caused by the hurricane, she was compelled emotionally by the urgency and the challenges of the climate crisis. So she made a radical shift. She quit her job as an attorney and created the Climate Museum. Her mission then, as it is now, was a deep civic shift toward climate dialogue across people's personal and professional lives, a ubiquitous understanding and acceptance of the crisis that will lead to meaningful climate policy. So here she is, Miranda Massey. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the circumpolar north through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska. And I'm Dr. Sandro De Bono. I'm a museum thinker from the Mediterranean island of Malta, and I work with museums to help them strategize around possible futures. And we'll be your hosts. In this Chattermark series, we talk to museum directors and knowledge holders about what museums around the world are doing to adapt and react to climate change. So Miranda, I read that one of your favorite pastimes is live theater. Yes. I know it's probably hard to pin down, but what do you think is one of your favorite shows? Well, I just saw a show recently that was extraordinary called Primary Trust. And it um, was about recovery from trauma 
but it was handled with so much tact mm -hmm. and with such a winsome and charming way. Just really blew me out of the water. Yeah. You know, how do you think being based in New York affects your perception and understanding of climate change? I think there are a lot of important things to say in response to that, and I'll, I'll try to limit myself to just a couple. First, I note that Hurricane Sandy was essential to my trajectory um, and my becoming a, a person who focused their, their attention and energy primarily on the climate crisis. It was astounding to see a city where so much power is concentrated, first of all, and also so many people from all over the world are concentrated, brought to its knees by climate-fueled weather. It made a huge impression on me and on many, many other people as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing that I would say. Another thing I would say is New York City, like, like other cities, shows us uh, both the, the best and the worst that our species has to offer. And from mm. my perspective, the climate crisis is all about bringing out the best in humanity and connecting us to each other across social difference so we can eliminate inequalities and move forward together without addressing those issues of equity. We will never in a sustainable or meaningful way, achieve a, a, a safe climate. Mm -hmm. um, and New York City, with its remarkable cultural richness and its remarkable human diversity and its staggering inequalities, mm -hmm. which you see on the street as you walk around the city every day, brings what humanity has to bring to the world, both on the positive side and on the problem side, very acutely into focus every single day. Mm -hmm. You mentioned how Hurricane Sandy was important to your trajectory. Was there anything in particular about Hurricane Sandy that made an impression on you? A lot of things did. Okay. I remember walking north to the office where I then worked my apartment was in a part of the grid that had been knocked out by the storm and my office, though it wasn't that far away, was in a part of the grid that snaked down weirdly far south into Manhattan. There was this narrow little tongue of electrical power grid that stayed up after Sandy mm -hmm. and our office was in that in that um, part of the grid. And so the first several days after the storm, I was walking there to get some work done, charge up my devices, et cetera. And I remember the feeling of walking from the visual quiet of my neighborhood without light into the visual noise. Uh, the office was located where everything was flashing. There were neon signs everywhere. Um, and just being struck by that um, powerful reminder of how much, um, how urban living in, involves just this profusion of information all of the time, bombarding our eyeballs and um, visual cortexes. Yeah. And it was mm. very, very striking. 
So that's, that's a, a kind of sensory experience that I had. Another thing that was profoundly impactful for me was the knowledge that in um, public housing in the city, um, on the, there, there were many upper floors of public housing where older people and people with disabilities were living that didn't have elevator service or running water for days after the city. So there was, while I was safe and well, there was this extraordinary expression of, of um, devastatingly unequal impacts mm -hmm. within a stone's throw of my own normal daily round. And that made it just a huge impression on me in terms of the relationship between climate and inequality, which mm -hmm. was part of what had motivated me to turn to climate in the first place. I was originally a social justice lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Hurricane Sandy really reinforced a desire that had been growing in me to turn my energy to climate and almost made it feel impossible not to do that for a whole bunch of reasons to do with both the fundamentality of what we face, the way it's an overarching crisis that subsumes all else, mm -hmm. and also the way in which it is the greatest expression of and intensifier of social inequalities, um, in particular, though not only inequalities of race and class that we have ever seen in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before Hurricane Sandy, how often did you think about the insular qualities of living in a city and how under certain catastrophic situations can upturn all of that insular socially you mean or insular yeah I, I think that it can be socially as well as um you know nature is pretty far away oh got it um right that's really interesting i think in my relationship to that is, in, in a way that I've, makes me feel incredibly lucky, different from that of a lot of my, my friends who live in New York City, in that my mom and my brother live about two hours outside of New York, and it's a very easy bus ride away, mm -hmm. and I visit them pretty often. So it is affordable and easy for me to, oh, and I should have, I should foreground my, my mom and my brother live about two hours away from New York City okay. in the woods. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so it's very easy and affordable for me to connect with nature pretty routinely outside of the city. Um, so I have probably a, a kind of biased sense of, of that isolation from nature. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a fantastic underlying point because I think living in the city, even if you have that special relationship to the country that I that I have as a person who grew up largely in the country and who's able to go there often you uh it it's it's uh it's not this you don't have the same relationship to weather patterns or to anything else in the world outside of the the built environment um that's thoroughly outside of your control mm -hmm. and Hurricane Sandy reminded everyone in an extraordinarily powerful and devastating way how little control 
we humans who have changed the climate to be what it is now have over the results of that. Yeah. Do you feel like that shift in careers that you made, leaving your work in social justice and starting the Climate Museum, you know, have you found there to be similarities between being an attorney and being the founder and director of the museum? Not really. I know um, that, that, I mean, it's definitely helpful to have the background that I have in specific ways mm-hmm. as the leader of the Climate Museum. But in, in terms of similarities, it runs through both professions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it also runs through the rest of life, in my opinion, which is mm. just the primary role that emotion plays in the human experience and in human understanding. We tend to think of ourselves as being deeply rational creatures. Mm-hmm. Of course, we are that too. Um, but for most of us, most of the time, the realm of the emotional is by far the most powerful force that's operating within us. And it's shaped profoundly by the realm of the social. And so as a courtroom trial lawyer, I was always very aware of that. (laughs) As a lawyer, you need to integrate into that understanding the logic of the legal structures that govern the matter you're addressing in court. Mm -hmm. Um, And here at the Climate Museum, we need to integrate into that sense of the primacy of social psychology and where people are at in terms of what they're feeling about the climate crisis, new information they can grab onto that will be helpful to allowing themselves to see that they can take meaningful action. Uh, as an individual who's part of a broader community. So Mm -hmm. there's a similar question about understanding that emotion comes first, that I think runs through the practice of my legal career, doing jury trials and the practice of creating the Climate Museum with um, our incredible team. Um, But there are many ways in which in which it's quite different. Sometimes journalists writing about the Climate Museum have tried to make comparisons of kind of systematically building something step by step. And I suppose that's true on a very general level. You systematically build a case and we've tried to be systematic about how we build out the Climate Museum. But I, I think the, 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 and again, the having, having a legal background has been useful in relation to a lot of specific and important tasks at the Climate Museum. Mm-hmm. But the fundamental similarity is is the one that I just said, and I'm not sure in the end it's limited to either of those realms. I think it, it it's really something that's critical for everybody um, who's trying to make social change, regardless of the modalities you're using to try to do that to understand. So the similarities between the two are in the emotional aspect. In the, not that the emotions are the same, but recognizing the primacy of the emotional over the rational. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So for example, understandably for decades, climate scientists 
who are on the more rational side of the human spectrum as a rule, both by inclination initially and then by training, believed that if they told the whole truth carefully, the right policies would follow. Hmm. But the, the way to move things forward, which those scientists very much wanted to do, isn't to tell the same truth again with the new developments that have occurred in the last year in climate science added on, mm -hmm. carefully, rationally, with attention to detail, etc. It's to find ways to appeal to the emotions that people have about leaving behind a better future for young people or about protecting the more than human world or about winter sports or about whatever it is that the people are passionate about already. Mm -hmm. That's how you get change. Yeah. You mobilize the population and then you get change from elected leaderships. Okay. And I think for a long time, there was a rationalist understanding that governed in climate communications. And we've learned um, that that's, that's not effective. That doesn't give us the change that we all see we need. Do you think that that rationalist understanding comes from the rational scientists thinking that if we just explain this, people will understand? Yes, I think it's, I think if you're a good faith scientist, who's first the kind of person who's attracted to a career in science, so you're going to tend to be more rationalist than your average human to start. And mm -hmm. then you're trained in the scientific method, which is not only highly rationalistic, but also all about uncertainty, error, and doubt. You it's easy to become an ineffective communicator on climate, despite the very best of intentions, despite intellectual brilliance, and despite a whole bunch of whole, a whole bunch of other things. You just it, you can miss that what you need to do is connect with people where their heart is, where their passions are. Mm -hmm. And that's the way forward. And this is not meant um, primarily as a criticism of scientists at all, I want to emphasize the real criticism should be directed at the fossil fuel industry, which has completely distorted the scientific debate by, mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in that example, creating a fake rationalist counterposition of climate denialism, hmm. casting doubt on the science that then turned the heads of the climate community, scientists and non-scientists alike, for way too long. I mean, we were paying attention to denialists and papers like the New York Times were publishing both sides quotes until several years, until I think it was 2017, so that's a little more than several years ago, but until very, very recently. So rationalism, um, is, it's, an, it, it, it's understandable um, why it's attractive to people, but it is, it's not the way forward uh, in climate advocacy. I know it probably is impossible for any of us to answer this for certain, but if you were to guess, when do you think we realize that, that this rationalist understanding wasn't working and that we need to pivot? 
I think it was about a little more than 10 years ago that it started being recognized. That's when you mm, first okay. s start seeing the beginnings of the climate arts movement, for example. And it's also when the terrain of climate communications was first established. It's like in 07, 08. Um, and we started seeing communications experts from the fields of public health. I'm thinking here of Ed Maybach at George Mason University, who founded one of the major climate communication centers um, and, and has um, colleagues working at Yale in a, in a similar center. But they started studying climate opinion and effective climate communications techniques around that time. It was a new field. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So you now have people getting PhDs in that area. Okay. But at the time, it's kind of astounding to say, since people had been concerned about the climate crisis for a long time before that, but it, it was a new, it was a, it was a brave new world at the time. And I think we've made astonishing progress since then, but it's still true that in a lot of circles, there's a, a misunderstanding of how, how best to appeal to people to give them a sense that they can play a meaningful role in this. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't do that, then you don't get the public conversation that we need. Mm -hmm. And without that public conversation, it's done. So I think it's, uh, it's a pretty new field. The field of climate arts, which is growing super rapidly, is also pretty new. But both of those very different um, areas of endeavor uh, understand that we can't we can't just talk to people as as if they're chatbots. Mm -hmm, we need mm -hmm. to reach them where they really live. Yeah. In 2007, you worked on a case that focused on children who were exposed to toxins while they were in public school. Was this the first time you were, as an attorney, involved in a case that dealt with people's health being affected by their environment? People's physical health by their physical environment, yes. Okay. I had done hostile environment cases in the sexual harassment context and um, also done a lot of racial justice litigation in, in the educational terrain. And there are questions about psychological and emotional health. And of course, physical health is closely linked to stress that mm -hmm. can come from different kinds of discrimination and um, uh, bigotry and inequality. Mm -hmm. However, in a physical sense, it was, yes. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you decided to make that shift from being an attorney to founding a museum? I do. I do. The first okay. tectonic plate shift was really during Sandy. I was sitting in my darkened apartment, enjoying the romance of solo indoor camping. Uh, which I did for a couple of days before moving in with my, my best friend and her family uptown. Um, but uh, I, I remember clearly this sense that's very hard to put into words of saying to myself, you've been pushing this away for a long time now, and that's no longer workable. Because I had been. In fact, you guys, when... An Inconvenient Truth first came out, 
I signed up for the DVD on Netflix, which used to send those mailers with DVDs in them. Yep. 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 And the DVD <laughs> arrived and it sat next to the DVD player gathering dust to the utter exasperation of the guy I was living with at the time for months because I wouldn't send it back. He was like, could we at least get another movie? Like, <laughs> we're not going to watch this. Could we get something else? And I was like, no, no, no. I'm going to watch it this month. I will. I will. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was, in a sense, paying the rental fees month after month after month after month to not watch that movie because I did not want to grapple with the question of climate change and what it might mean for me as a person who had always had the inclination and also the ability and the luxury of dedicating my time to what I thought was most compelling. It felt too overwhelming and too big and like too much of a change. And mm -hmm. so then several years later, I'm sitting in my darkened apartment during Sandy and it just simply clicked in no matter how compelling the work I was doing around children's environmental, environmental health, to your earlier point, mm -hmm. and the other environmental justice work I was doing all felt enormously compelling to me. Um, the work of my colleagues in the civil rights legal nonprofit where I was then employed, all of it, all of it felt like it was swamped by the urgency and the challenges of the climate crisis. And though I had known that, intellectually for a while, again, the distinction between what we know rationally and what we feel emotionally ready for, uh, I, I, uh, it really took Hurricane Sandy to push me definitively in that direction. And then it was only a couple weeks after that, for a variety of other reasons, I was looking for a next, for a next big thing to throw myself at. I knew it was going to have to be something about climate. Mm -hmm. And the idea for a climate museum slid so thoroughly and fully formed into my mind that I 100% assumed that I had read about a climate museum somewhere and that my next big thing would be to go help whoever was doing it. Mm -hmm. And I was astounded to discover that we would be the first in the US. Astounded. I still mm -hmm. am astounded. <laughs> OK. So perhaps. Uh you might uh, introduce us then to the Climate Museum. Can you give us a brief introduction of, of your museum? Absolutely. So what, the work that we do involves mobilizing arts and cultural programming to invite people into recognizing their own ability to take meaningful action on climate change. Mm -hmm. So in the US, as one example, a vast majority of adults want to see transformational, bold action on climate. For example, close to 70% of people support a Green New Deal okay. with its integration of labor and justice and uh, decarbonization initiatives. 69% of US adults want to see reparative payments to the black and brown and working class white communities that have been used mm. as sacrifice zones for okay. fossil fuel expansion. There's a massive, massive level of public support for rigorous and sweeping climate action. And what's striking to us at the Climate Museum about that is how silent the public culture is compared to that. Hmm. So 
We think of support for reproductive freedom in the United States as being landside support, and it is at 61% nationally. We're talking about numbers much, much bigger than that. Hmm. So in Mississippi, for instance, 61% of people are climate justice hawks. But, and this is critical, if you ask Mississippians, they'll say a number in the low 30s. So, and that's true in every state in the United States. A study came out last summer that's been enormously helpful to us as we connect with visitors at the climate museum's uh, shows. Mm -hmm. We underestimate support for climate action by half in every state, and in every state, a large majority of us support it. The researchers who discovered this last summer describe it as being a false social reality. That's mm. their phrase, that we inhabit on climate opinion in the US. So there's a myth of American indifference on climate. And learning about that myth tells people both that they're not alone in caring deeply about it and being deeply concerned about it, but also that they're not alone in feeling alone about it. And it's, it's a critical part of the work we do. We know that art has a massive power to help people feel connected to others. The arts are built into how we experience ourselves as a social and communal species. It's why there are cave drawings on the walls of some of our first homes. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a genetic mutation that differentiates us from our Neanderthal cousins that accounts for aesthetic appreciation. It's mm -hmm. recently discovered there's a guy who's sequencing the Neanderthal genome, and it turns out Neanderthals don't have the gene that we have that makes us appreciate things that are beautiful. Mm -hmm. When a Neanderthal made something beautiful, it was by accident, right? It is interesting. So it's built Very into our biology to seek beauty and also equally to feel connected to each other through it. So instead of starting with a chart or with a lecture or with a political point about climate, if you start with the arts, people already are connecting with a sense of community, with a sense of others beyond themselves, with a sense of what human beings are capable of at our best, the creativity, the brilliance, mm -hmm. the ability to solve problems and to move forward. All of that happens on a level that's not even fully conscious most of the time when we're taking in good art. And there's some emerging neuroscience, in fact, on the impacts of art on the brain. It, it, it creates new neural pathways and opens us up to new ways of thinking in a physical sense. It's a mm -hmm. very, very mm -hmm. powerful pathway for a transformation of not opinion in this case, although it does that too, if that's needed in other contexts. Mm -hmm. Here, we know that what we're trying to do at the Climate Museum is not change the mind of a denialist, it's fine if they change their mind. We don't expect them to. We want to help the supermajority that's already with, with us, the sweeping changes that we need to see in the world to decarbonize and to, to create justice. Those people are the, are, the, are, are the ones we're looking to empower with a sense mm -hmm. of connection to each other and with a sense of their own agency and possibility, which is hard to feel in relation to a global crisis, to put mm -hmm. it mildly. But the arts are an essential ingredient in our approach to doing that. And we've been 
bullish as we always have been about that approach, it's remarkable to watch it in action. Mm-hmm. It is so effective to mm-hmm. put people in room with each other and with good art and with an opportunity to start taking climate action. Mm-hmm. The results are magical. Mm-hmm. In fact, I did read on your website that uh, your museum, the Climate Museum, mobilizes the power of arts, and I'm quoting here, and cultural programming to accelerate the crucial shift towards climate dialogue and action, connecting people and advancing just solutions. But in practical terms, in pragmatic terms, how do you go about implementing this vision? How do you go about um, tapping into the arts and the potential of the arts to address this challenge? Well, I can illustrate that, I think, most immediately drawing on a description of the show that we had up between October and April in New York City, which first presented viewers with a remarkable major new work of climate art by the artist David Opdyke that used vintage postcards pieced together like an unintentional jigsaw puzzle Mm-hmm. to create a vision of a dystopian vision, actually, which is interesting in itself mm. because it remained empowering, not disempowering, uh, a dystopian vision of a, of a possible future in which um, everything's turned upside down. There are gigantic um, n- new megafauna um, kind of circling the landscape in, in a sci-fi way. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's trying to get somewhere else. It was a piece about climate migration and displacement. It was very beautiful. It was also very intellectually stimulating and very funny. There's a lot mm-hmm. of gallows humor in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, because of its aesthetic power, because it was so full of incident and detail, people walked away from this world depicted, which was, as I, as I mentioned, powerfully worrisome, not, not more worried than they had been, but readier to take in new information. That's the power of art. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. people came away from that, and then they were able to engage with some social science findings, including the ones I just mentioned about the climate supermajority in the U.S., and um, that 69% of people who are climate justice hawks. Um, and then people were given the opportunity to take different kinds of actions, including recording videos that expressed their, um, their thoughts and feelings about climate, mm-hmm. writing postcards to elected officials, and then taking a whole range of other actions that we curated and suggested such as calling their bank, which in the case of any major commercial bank is an institution that is scandalously still financing new fossil fuel infrastructure, which everybody, mm. everybody says is incompatible with a sane approach mm. to the future, to, mm. to put it mildly mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and politely. <laughs> Just it, absolutely bonkers that banks are continuing to finance new fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, And most banks do this. And so one example of an action that we proposed to people and that people could make a commitment to undertake and physicalize that commitment by putting a climate action 
commitment sticker on the wall was to call your bank. Mm -hmm. There were 11 other actions as well. Push for climate content at your kid's school. Call your representative. Um, talk to your friends and family more about climate. There were a bunch of different specific actions. And then there was also an open-ended climate action sticker that allowed you to designate your own climate action. Mm -hmm. And to our intense delight, that was the most popular sticker. Hmm. Because, and, and I, I don't think that people would have filled that sticker out or that the sticker wall would have exploded with color and action the way it did if we hadn't also provided the specific actions. Mm -hmm. But by providing those specific actions, you give everyone a sense of, hey, I can do this. I can do yeah. something that becomes meaningful because I'm helping other people do it as well. Mm -hmm. So it's again, comes back to that sense of community and connection, which is probably the single thing we most need to, in confronting the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So in a way, um, your, your main trust is uh, essentially about about, I would say, empowerment then. But uh, from a practical point of view, I mean, is, is the Climate Museum a dedicated space? Is it a pop-up space? Um, what, what would it look like? What does it look like? Our most recent, well, let me back up actually. We're, we have not had our own dedicated exhibition space and we're very eager to secure longer term dedicated exhibition space which doesn't have to be a huge building. We've learned that we can scale our impact through partnerships with other organizations, for example. Um, but having a series of pop-ups is the method we're using now to try to scale up mm -hmm. to having, call it a five or 10 year lease, at least initially, um, of exhibition space that we can program year round, test out different exhibitions in, and so on. Okay. So. The goal is to have a long-term space. Mm -hmm. The current reality, and this is a matter of, of fundraising and philanthropy, is that we are um, using pop-up spaces that we rent on a short-term basis to try to attract the support that we need to get to that longer-term goal. Okay, so that is probably one aspect which makes you different or defines you as a different institution when compared to other climate museums. Uh, are there any other, other particular characteristics that refer specifically to the climate museum in New York? Besides the fact that you don't have a dedicated space yet, if I got it? Yeah, I think there's... Yeah, you're definitely right on the yet. That's our goal for sure. Um, there aren't that many climate dedicated museums in the world, though it's starting to develop more and more as an area of programming within museums that are not fully climate dedicated, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also more and more projects that are at least somewhat, that, that are close cousins of ours springing up in different places. There was when we started already a climate dedicated museum in the outskirts of Hong Kong. And one of the first things we did when we launched the Climate Museum was to go visit there I would say a key thing that distinguishes us, not from all other museums, but from the very large majority, is that we're explicitly activist in our approach. 
Okay. okay. So we don't see an exhibition as a success, no matter how great the art is. If our visitors don't feel more empowered to take climate action when they leave by a lot than they did when they walked in the door. That's a critical metric for us. So we're explicitly activist about what our goals are. And this isn't universal in the museum world, but museums have generally been concerned about encouraging action by visitors based on a notion that it will make them seem less credible. And one of the superpowers that museums hold is public trust. Mm -hmm. So there's often been a doubt that encouraging people to become civic activists on a subject is consistent with maintaining, with maintaining um, that public trust. Mm -hmm. In a sense, it's a little bit like the misunderstanding that scientists had for a long time about climate communications. It's an overvaluation of rationalism and an idea about neutrality that really doesn't get you very far or stand up to close consideration, mm -hmm. even as neutrality in the end. Um, but the, the truth is, um, and this has been confirmed by a recent study done, I think, in 2022, it enhances public trust when museums ask visitors to take action consistent with their missions. It, it m makes people feel uh, like the museums mean what they're saying more, not less. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's starting to shift. I think museums are becoming more focused on activism. Um, and I think uh, it's a very, very, very welcome shift. But I think as of now, it's still something that distinguishes us. We're explicitly activists. We're a cultural activist organization in, in a way that is, um, that is very front and center. There, it's not that there are no precedents for this, by the way. For example, the Monterey Bay Aquarium mm -hmm. in, in California is, is a little bit a, an ocean conservation activation project disguised, if you will, as an aquarium. Okay. Um, the Holocaust Museum is about preventing genocide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the, the Legacy Museum is about building civic activism against white supremacy and racism and its mm -hmm. continuing expression in American society and culture. So it's not, it's not unique in that way, but we're in a bit of an outlier along with a few other institutions, I would say.
I read something about you that I thought was interesting, that contending with the climate crisis at scale requires a transformation of our public culture. What do you think that shift in public culture looks like? I think it looks like that climate justice supermajority that I've mentioned, the 69% of people who want to see ambitious climate justice policies and Mm -hmm. decarbonization policies as well implemented, expressing themselves in ways large and small across the public sphere. When that happens, we will see the policies that we need. Right now, we have a situation in which a a climate denialist or semi-climate denialist politician doesn't feel the need to be accountable to that supermajority at all because the Mm -hmm. supermajority is private. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So those views are held deeply, but they're not expressed in any way uh, even often to close friends and family. So mm-hmm. when, those, when those conversations start happening um, across our day-to-day lives, across then our civic lives, um, across the, 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 the media, when we see more and more TV shows, and to, to return to one of my great passions, plays, <laughs> theatrical mm-hmm. work, yeah. referencing the climate crisis and lifting up people's concerns about it, we will be in a completely different place in terms of what's possible on policy. Because right now, our worst antagonists on climate who hold elected office don't feel any pressure at all. And okay. our best leaders, similarly, though on, on in an opposite way, don't feel the support that they need. So. Hmm. That's what that transformation in public culture would look like to us, a, a deep civic shift toward climate dialogue across people's lives, both their, their in the domestic space, in their workspaces. Everybody has traction on this. You are in a book club, recommend a book about climate. Mm-hmm. You are a teacher at a school convene a meeting of the all the humanities and all the science teachers in the school to do interdisciplinary educational work on climate. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on and on. There's no end to different ways you can be a climate protagonist when more of us are recognizing that and most of all feel emotionally ready to do that, feel empowered to do that, which is what our work is all about. Um, we will get the action at scale that we need. Mm -hmm. Have there been any conversations among you and your team about how to convey a complex subject to the average, maybe even passive museum goer? Yeah, I would say that's like 50% of what we talk about. Okay. Okay. It's, and I I won't sign on to passive. I think um, that, that particularly for a museum like ours, I don't think this is true for for other more established museums, but people are usually curious in a specific way. Mm-hmm. So we're not like something you have to check off your list when you come to New York as a tourist, for example. Um, uh, we would love to be in that position and hope to be in that position, but that is not the case at this moment in time. So when people come to us, they're coming 
ready in a certain way, even if they're just a passerby on the, on the street. Um, but so tweaking the answer a little so that it doesn't quite land on all fours with the question, we're in a bubble in this office, and this is true for all climate advocates, because in a fundamental sense, that's what we are, mm -hmm. where we talk to other people who are super informed about climate, super focused on it, working on it all the time, who have a sailing drip of terrible information about what's happening in the world into their arm through their news feeds every day and are kind of emotionally managing that and thinking about it mm -hmm. all the time, taking a bunch of stuff for granted. We're at the risk of uh, engaging in jargon, mm -hmm. not always specific words, which is of course what jargon means in a, in a literal sense, but taking too much for granted about what people are, what they already understand, what they're feeling emotionally. And so we are constantly in a fight with ourselves to get out of that bubble. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we do that literally by asking people we know who are less deeply engaged in climate work than we are, does this make sense or does this feel completely random? Okay. Because mm -hmm. it's very, very, very easy to lose track of your own confirmation bias, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So in a way, you're translating uh, science data into a more understandable language that is inspired also by the potential and the possibility to engage emotively with yes. your publics. Yes. Would that, would that synthesize it properly? The, yes. W yes. Physical science data, social science data, we're bringing the arts in to help people open up to it more and feel more connected to others so that the new information can be put to work in the form of civic activism. So often strategic communications, people will talk about the troika of what you want your audience to know, to feel, and to do. And we agree with those three categories. We just put the feelings first. Mm -hmm. So we start with, with what our audience is feeling and how we can help them feel less distressed and less isolated and more connected and more capable of meaningful action. Um, then we move to a pedagogical moment where there's something surprising and new that we have to share with our audience about the climate crisis or about U.S. climate opinion mm -hmm. um, or about how you can't understand the aggregation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere without understanding colonialism mm. or mm -hmm. whatever the piece of um, information that we're focused on imparting in a given exhibition or program is. And then from there, the third element, what do you want your audience to do, is uh, take action, is connect with others, commit to taking action, start thinking of yourself as a climate ambassador, as someone who's actively engaged in spreading the word that there's a climate supermajority and that we can shift the culture and get the policy that we need for a safe and just future. Mm -hmm. Just a minute ago, you mentioned how climate change activists have this saline drip of constant climate change information. How do you emotionally manage that saline drip? Different ways on different days. I think the first thing is self-compassion when it okay. comes to that saline drip. 
up to and including there are days when I turn the drip off because I know I'm not in a state where I can handle the drip. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's okay some days. Um, and there are other days where gallows humor is enormously helpful mm -hmm. in m managing um, responses to news of climate disaster and shifting trends that are, let's face it, it's, it's never good news. Mm -hmm. The news is always bad, and it's usually worse than what was predicted. That's the general trend. So um, connecting with other people, allowing yourself to be openly emotional about it in a state of grief mm -hmm. or rage in relation to governance and its relationship to the fossil fuel industry, for example, um, or... Uh, it's, uh, I think, as with other kinds of really difficult or even traumatic emotional situations, allowing yourself to have the reaction that you have is a critical first step in order to move forward into doing something that feels productive about it and that in feeling productive about it and meaningful can help you move into an emotional space that's less hurt. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it actually sounds a lot like how medical personnel, doctors, mm. nurses, people like that, you know, they also use gallows humor. Totally makes sense to me. I mean, I think you, you've got to, you have to have a support network. You can't do it alone. It's, it's, and it's also okay some days to compartmentalize, shut down your reactions, and get to work mm -hmm. um, and, and metabolize your feelings later. There's no wrong answer unless it's the answer of not, of, of, um, not allowing yourself to feel what you're feeling on the time scale that, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is that in your mind, the biggest challenge or maybe one of the biggest challenges in running or overseeing a museum focus on climate change? I think being confronted constantly with the radical and negative uncertainty of our common human future is hugely difficult as a part of this job or any climate-focused job. Mm -hmm. I think that's that is a, a huge part of the challenge. I also think, and I don't mean this in a Pollyannish way, I just think it's true, that radical negative uncertainty is what most people in the world, most members of our species, have been dealing with in one way or another most of the time since we became a species. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a profoundly humanizing experience if you allow it to be as a person who carries privilege in the world to confront this sense of radical negative uncertainty and figure out how to intervene in your own psychology and attempt to be useful to other people in a, in a way that can move things forward. It, 
is um, it builds resilience, it builds compassion, and it's a deeply humanizing experience, I would say. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, and that's often the case with, our, with life's big challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's mm-hmm. the recognition of mortality that comes when people we love die or mm-hmm. um, when we face unanticipated massive new difficulties of whatever kind. If you have a growth mindset about it, you become bigger and deeper as a person. Mm-hmm. And that is a, that is a profound, I won't call it an, it's not a reward exactly. It's just a profound fact about dealing with, about facing the difficulty of the climate crisis head on in emotional terms. It makes you feel more connected to other people. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're going to have your bad days where you don't feel like that at all, by the way. Yeah. Um, but it is in an overall and general way, I, I think that, that that immense painful challenge carries carries something really meaningful and 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 deep with it that I value that I value endlessly. Um, I will also say, if if I can, and I I know that we're not live, so you might decide that this is not apropos, but a huge difficulty that all of us face in the climate sector is that philanthropy is not responding properly. And Hmm. it's pretty crushing. Hmm. For instance, a very middle-of-the-road foundation did a study, very middle-of-the-road establishment foundation. 2% of global philanthropy is going to any climate-related cause. Really? That's bonkers, guys. I mean, what would we say to the Martian sociologist? It, there's no polite way to describe that percentage. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it does not make sense. And then for us specifically and other arts-focused organizations within that, there's no conceptual space for work at the intersection of climate and arts and justice. Zero. There's a major foundation that we heard from a couple of weeks ago. It's actually looking to create a program line exactly at that intersection, mm-hmm. but it has not existed up till this point. And we've been, we're super grateful to the institutional and individual um, uh, philanthropies and philanthropists that have supported the work to date. But I do think it's something that's worth flagging that it's um, the way in which philanthropy is a slow moving ocean liner culturally and doesn't have any pressure or motivation to change is exceptionally damaging to the climate movement and to climate endeavors, and is something that that should be addressed in public discussion much more than it is, in my view. Mm-hmm. That's quite unusual in the sense that you are mentioning that there is an increasing awareness um, at different levels of American society yes. about climate yes. change, but then philanthropy is not responding. How come? No. And no, and they all care about it too. That <laughs> they all respond. I mean, that what they've done studies of the people who work at philanthropies, and they're all really worried about the climate crisis. They're just not changing their practices. Mm-hmm. I think there are probably a lot of people in government who have the same profile. We need social pressure from all around and from, let's call it below, for the sake of argument, 
to create a different context for decision making for people who hold power and authority and ability to make change of whatever kind at scale, whether that's major philanthropy or um, or, or, or people in the government. Like it's <laughs> it's profound, the gap between what people are thinking and feeling on the one hand and what they're doing on the other in those sectors that have the capacity to put us on the right path. We know what to do and we mm -hmm. have the ability to do it. I'm not saying all aspects of it will be easy. For example, decarbonizing, say, aviation. It's not going to be easy. No. But a lot of the aspects of it are actually pretty close to easy. And we're simply not doing them because the the momentum of business as usual is profound and we mm -hmm. need to break that momentum mm -hmm. we also need to break the control of the fossil fuel industry lobby um over our over our elected officialdom it's it's a cancer on the body politic and it is putting us on a on a road to ruin so but that's part of business as usual itself right like it's Mm -hmm. It's all part of the same ball of wax. We mm -hmm. have to make some massive changes and there's really no time. There's no time to waste. And that applies to philanthropy as well as to government. So how do you think that that affects you and your crew? Is it disheartening or does it just feel like you're trailblazers? Some of each. Um, okay. And it also pisses us off. Okay. It makes us mad. <laughs> Um, it's understandable. Yeah, we, we, well, we, we find, and I think there are many other people who are doing, if I can say kind of cutting edge work in climate, we're not the only, only people in that category by a very long shot, thankfully. But I think it's very, you tend to get a lot of gold stars and praise and accolades that aren't matched by the support that you materially need to do the work that's being received so positively. And that can come to seem pretty frustrating mm -hmm. <laughs> um, at a certain point. Yeah. I'd like to, to take you back to, to the pop-up uh, projects uh, the pop-up uh, exhibitions where you also feature um, commissioned art or uh, climate change art that you handpick or that you are uh, aware of in your or you are made aware of during your your research and your preparatory work in the run-up to the uh, exhibition. And uh, I read that you have recently launched a series of transit accessible pop-ups which refer to year-round locations, uh, which you also describe as featuring interactive art history and uh, other aspects. Can you tell us a little bit more about this latest um, project? Is it is it in line with what you were mentioning or is it something more specific or different? It's the, it's the exhibition that I mentioned with the there are two pop-ups thus far. One is the one that we closed at the end of April that opened in October that featured the art of Dot David Opdyke, mm -hmm. the climate 
mural composed out of vintage postcards that the artist modified with paint um, that we spoke about a little earlier. Um, and then the next pop-up is a, is a pop-up focused on climate justice and the history of climate and essentially climate and colonialism, colonialism plus, let's say. So okay. those pop-ups are part of our strategy to achieve a financial stability for the long term. And we'll see whether or not it works. But that's, okay. we know that the exhibition work that we do is the most powerful way that we can reach people. Okay. And do you already have data which uh, can give you an approximate idea about the impact of these uh, projects? Uh, I know you mentioned uh, activism as one of your goals or your objectives, empowerment and so on and so forth. Is it possible to measure the impact of these of these projects in 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 tangible ways? Yes, we count heads and we count climate actions and climate action commitments. But there's a fundamental lack of fit between those counts, those numbers, and what's most meaningfully happening. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a basic way in which you count a single climate action commitment. And it might be, by the way, that the person who's making that action commitment doesn't actually end up calling their representative that week. Okay. So, so there's a one narrow sense in which the numbers may overstate the impact of a show. Um, and we track, we track the numbers because it's important to funders and it's also important to us. And we want the numbers to be as big as possible uh, at, for reasons that are, I think, in, intuitively obvious. But we're also very acutely aware that most of all, those numbers understate the impact of what we're doing. So for example, at our first pop-up, the, the, one, the one we talked about for a little while, at that first pop-up, we got Google reviews from people we didn't know at all that said things like, spend 30 minutes here and your life will be changed. Hmm. And okay. that, that's one visitor who probably made one action commitment but very clearly, that's a person who's going to be talking about their visit to a number of others, most likely, mm -hmm. taking a bunch of different actions, thinking of themselves in a whole new way. So we're very focused on thinking about impact and how to measure it better. But we know that a lot of it is qualitative, not quantitative, and escapes okay. our ability to count heads. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And you also mentioned uh, the ambition to create communities around the need to take action on climate change issues. Uh, I think you mentioned that. I, I believe I've read it also on your on your website. And what would these communities look like then? I mean, it can take different forms. I mean, we had a lot of people just spontaneously comment that the first pop up created a sense of community for them. For some people, it's seeing all the other climate action stickers on the wall. That is That in itself creates a sense of community. For some people, it's coming to events at the museum and seeing how many other people are interested in climate psychology, for example, or climate migration, or learning the basics of climate justice, the basic principles of climate and environmental justice. Um, so 
there's a sense of community involved simply in being in the same space with other people and having similar or related emotions. Um, and when people, this is a brand new study, speaking of neuroscience as we were a, a, a little while ago, mm -hmm. brand new studies showing that when people start to feel in sync with each other, when you have that subjective experience, you're actually changing each other's chemistry and your brains are aligning Hmm. Um, in ways that are much more sophisticated than anything I can explain clearly. But um, it's a physical, we are very, very social creatures. So being in space with other humans in a way that's calculated effectively um, to, to uh, build your sense of agency and possibility, mm -hmm. it creates a sense of community right there as does an aesthetic experience that's just hardwired into us, um, into the large majority of us anyway. So that sense of community can mean different things at different times for different people. Um, it can be more or less intense or diffuse. It can be geographical or non-geographical. Um, it can be built around intention or experience. But the fundamental thing is knowing that we are on this journey toward a safe and just future with other people, not by ourselves. That doesn't mean we all are going to agree about everything, obviously. Absolutely. Not, the, the community doesn't have to be all champagne and roses. It's mm -hmm. going to be hard conversations as well. But there's a sense of meaning and connection um, that is what we humans are all about, fundamentally. Um, and to do effective work on climate, in our view, you need to be tapping into that and relating to it. And, and you'll be more or less successful on different occasions and with different programs. And that's okay, too, because you, you have to test out a bunch of different stuff before figuring out what's going to work best. Um, but that should be the goal and the kind of guiding, the guiding principle. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have one last question for you, Miranda. What is the impact of the Climate Museum in the medium to long term? What do you envisage which will stand for your relevance within the museum ecosystem and as far as climate change action is concerned? Ideally, within the museum ecosystem, we would see, and we're starting to see this, more and more museums doing work on climate. Some of that can be tagged to us. Some of it won't we'll never know how much of the role we played. There are museum, there are museum workers who tell us that we've played a role, uh, but we don't always, we don't, we don't hear that about every show and we don't expect our work is influencing every show, obviously either. Um, but seeing more and more work in the cultural sphere about climate, some of which is increasingly, um, aspirationally work that we're involved in helping to create, Mm -hmm. We've just, for example, created a pop-up installation at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, which is, mm -hmm. if you, if, if if listeners aren't aren't familiar with it, a massive, spectacular cultural institution in Brooklyn that is deeply trusted, um, has a huge annual uh, visitorship, and is just a an anchor of the community. It's just a beautiful facility, and they've invited us to create an installation in their conservatory. And the response that 
their visitors have had to the invitation to take climate action in concert with others by making a commitment and physicalizing it with a, with a brightly colored climate action sticker has been phenomenal. All the walls in the, in the gallery are covered with stickers, even the ones that weren't intended to be. <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely wild how ready people are to do this work. So for that part of your question, seeing more and more institutions do this kind of work and working with more and more institutions as they do this kind of work is, is a critical metric for us, even though we can't always say whether we had an influence in the former case. Mm-hmm. Second, mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the climate action space, we um, want to be a convening ground with our fellow travelers who are in the organized climate movement, and that's really important to us, and we create space for allied organizations to hold events and the like. But our main target audience is the members of the public who are not yet active on climate, but who are worried about it. So we measure our success in that sphere on a case-by-case basis when we see Google reviews that talk about how transformational a visit was or how ready someone who's walking out of the museum feels to tell their friends and family about the myth of American climate indifference. There are are individual um, data points that help us see that we're having an impact. On On a broader scale, we need so, we need to, we need to multiply ourselves times 10 or times 100. And we work with a lot of other cultural organizations that are doing work on climate. We um, collaborate and work in partnership constantly. Um, and it all just needs to grow at a, at a very, very high rate of speed to see the kind of change that we're talking about, mm-hmm. which would really be, and, and there's um, no one data point to um, single out that captures this. But in overall terms, it would be that climate supermajority being expressed in our public culture on the streets of New York City and everywhere else. Right now, you don't walk around the United States, any part of it, able to recognize that the vast majority of the people who are also walking around on the sidewalk next to you or in, in the rural grocery store in the next aisle over, share your views in a fundamental way on the need for transformational climate policy. We need, a, we need a world and a society, and perhaps it's most important to say a culture in which those privately held beliefs are part of our daily public round all of the time. Mm-hmm. And I also have one last question for you. Are there any live theater shows you're looking forward to? <laughs> so many. <laughs> I was expecting that. I was expecting yeah. that. So many. You know, it's funny. I've actually I've been to a lot of theater in the last few weeks, um, but I don't have any. I I need to uh, I I need to get to work and um, identify my next couple of shows. But I so appreciate your returning to that love of mine. Um, it is for anybody who's listening who. Um, is in New York and um, hasn't seen Fat Ham, I want to recommend it. 
as vigorously as I possibly can. It, it moved from the public theater to Broadway, and it is a show that is enormously, um, just enormously inventive and exuberantly creative and moving and meaningful and profound. So that's a recommendation I'll make. Um, but I, um, uh, I'm, I, I have to scan what's currently out there and purchase my next slate of tickets before I can give a satisfactory answer in a forward-looking way. Yeah, okay. Well, Miranda, that does it for our questions. You know, we want to thank you for spending this time with us. And really, thank you. also, thank you for all the work you do with the Climate Museum. Absolutely. Oh, thank you, guys. This was great. And I really appreciated meeting both of you and your super thoughtful, unusually thoughtful um, questions. Really lovely to talk. Thank you. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. Mm-hmm.